Chapter 9, Part 1 of Shirley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. Mrs. Halstone and Sykes began to be extremely jocose and congratulatory with Mr. Moore when he returned to them after dismissing the deputation. He was so quiet, however, under their compliments, upon his firmness, etc., and wore a countenance so like a still, dark day, equally beanless and breezeless, that the rector, after glancing shrewdly into his eyes, buttoned up his felicitations with his coat, and said to Sykes, whose senses were not acute enough to enable him to discover unassisted where his presence and conversation were a nuisance, "'Come, sir, your road and mine lie partly together. Had we not better bear each other company?' We'll bid Moore good morning, and leave him to the happy fancies he seems disposed to indulge. "'And where is Sutchin?' demanded Moore, looking up. "'Aha!' cried Hellstone. "'I've not been quite idle while you were busy. I've been helping you a little. I flatter myself not injudiciously. I thought it better not to lose time. So, while you were parleying with that down-looking gentleman, Farron, I think his name is, I opened this back window— shouted to Murgatroyd, who was in the stable, to bring Mr. Sykes' gig round, and then I smuggled Sugden and his brother Moses, wooden leg and all, through the aperture, and saw them mount the gig, always with our good friend Sykes' permission, of course. Sugden took the reins he drives like Jehu, and in another quarter of an hour Bearclaw will be safe in Stilbro jail. "'Very good, thank you,' said Moore. "'And good morning, gentlemen,' he added, and so politely conducted them to the door and saw them clear of his premises. He was a taciturn, serious man the rest of the day. He did not even bandy a repartee with Joe Scott, who, for his part, said to his master only just what was absolutely necessary to the progress of business, but looked at him a good deal out of the corners of his eyes, frequently came to poke the counting-house fire for him, and once, as he was locking up for the day, the mill was then working short time owing to the slackness of trade, observed that it was a grand evening, and he could wish Mr. Moore to take a bit of a walk up the hollow. It would do him good. At this recommendation, Mr. Moore burst into a short laugh, and after demanding of Joe what all this solicitude meant, and whether he took him for a woman or a child, seized the keys from his hand, and shoved him by the shoulders out of his presence. He called him back, however, ere he had reached the yard-gate. "'Joe, do you know those ferrens?' They are not well off, I suppose. They cannot be well off, sir, when they've not had work as a three-month. You'd see yourself at William sorely changed, fair-paired. They've sold most of the stuff out of the house. He was not a bad workman? You never had a better, sir, sin you began trade. And decent people, the whole family? Never decenter. The wife's a right can body, and as clean, you might eat your porous off the house floor. They're sorely come down. I wish William could get a job as gardener or summit that way. He understands gardening well. He once lived with a Scotchman that touched him the mysteries of the craft, as they say. Now then you can go, Joe. You need not stand there staring at me. You've no orders to give, sir. None, but for you to take yourself off, which Joe did accordingly. Spring evenings are often cold and raw, and though this had been a fine day, warm even in the morning and meridian sunshine, the air chilled at sunset, the ground crisped, and ere dusk a hoar-frost was insidiously stealing over growing grass and unfolding bud. 
It whitened the pavement in front of Briarman's, Mr. York's residence, and made silent havoc among the tender plants in his garden and on the mossy level of his lawn. As to that great tree, strong-trunked and broad-armed, which guarded the gable nearest the road, it seemed to defy a spring night frost to harm its still bare boughs, and so did the leafless grove of walnut trees rising tall behind the house. In the dusk of the moonless, if starry night, lights from windows shone vividly. This was no dark or lonely scene, nor even a silent one. Brian stood near the highway. It was rather an old place, and had been built ere the highway was cut, and when a lane winding up through fields was the only path conducting to it. Briarfield lay scarce a mile off, its hum was heard, its glare distinctly seen. Briar Chapel, a large, new, raw, Westland place of worship, rose but a hundred yards distant, and as there was even now a prayer meeting being held within its walls, the illumination of its windows cast a bright reflection on the road, while a hymn of a most extraordinary description, such as a very cheery Quaker, might feel himself moved by the spirit to dance to, roused cheerily all the echoes of the vicinage. The words were distinctly audible by Snatches. Here is a quotation or two from different strains, for the singers passed jauntily from hymn to hymn, and from tune to tune, with an ease and buoyancy all their own. Oh, who can explain this struggle for life, this travel and pain, this trembling and strife, plague, earthquake and famine, and tumult and war, the wonderful coming of Jesus declare? For every fight is dreadful and loud, the warrior's delight is slaughter and blood, his foes overturning, till all shall expire, and this is with burning and fuel and fire. Here followed an interval of clamorous prayer, accompanied by fearful groans. A shout of, I've found liberty! Dodo Bills has found liberty! rang from the chapel, and out all the assembly broke again. What a mercy is this! What a heaven of bliss! How unspeakably happy am I! Gathered into the fold, with thy people enrolled, with thy people to live and to die. Oh, the goodness of God, in employing a clod, his tribute of glory to raise, his standard to bear, and with triumph declare, his unspeakable riches of grace. O oh, the fathomless love that is deigned to approve, and prosper the work in my hands. With my pastoral crook I went over the brook, and behold I am spread into bands. Who, I ask in amaze, hath begotten me these, and inquire from what quarter they came? My full heart, it replies, they are born from the skies, and gives glory to God and the Lamb. The stanza which follows this, after another and longer interregnum of shouts, yells, ejaculations, frantic cries, agonized groans, seemed to cap the climax of noise and zeal. Sleeping on the brink of zin, Tophet gaped to take us in, mercy to our rescue flew, broke the snare and brought us through. Here as in a lion's den, undevoured we still remain, past secure the watery flood, hanging on the arm of God. Here, terrible, most distracting to the ear, was the strange shout in which the last stanza was given. Here we raise our voices higher, shout in the refiner's fire, clap our hands amidst the flame, glory give to Jesus' name. The roof of the chapel did not fly off, which speaks volumes in praise of its solid slating. But if Briar Chapel seemed alive, so also did Briarman's, though certainly the mansion appeared to enjoy a quieter phase of existence than the temple. Some of its windows, too, were aglow. The lower casements opened upon the lawn, curtains concealed the interior, and partly obscured the ray of the candles which lit it, but they did not entirely muffle the sound of voice and laughter. We are privileged to enter that front door, 
and to penetrate to the domestic sanctum. It is not the presence of company which makes Mr. York's habitation lively, for there is none within it save his own family, and they are assembled in that farthest room to the right, the back parlor. This is the usual sitting-room of an evening. Those windows would be seen by daylight to be of brilliantly stained glass, purple and amber the predominant hues, glittering round a gravely tinted medallion in the center of each, representing the suave head of William Shakespeare and the serene one of John Milton. Some Canadian views hung on the walls, green forest and blue water scenery, and in the midst of them blazes a night eruption of Vesuvius, very ardently it glows, contrasted with the cool foam and azure of cataracts and the dusky depths of woods. The fire illuminating this room, reader, is such as, if you be a southern, you do not often see burning on the hearth of a private apartment. It is a clear, hot, coal fire, heaped high in the ample chimney. Mr. York will have such fires even in warm summer weather. He sits beside it with a book in his hand, a little round stand at his elbow supporting a candle, but he is not reading, he is watching his children. Opposite to him sits his lady, a personage whom I might describe minutely, but I feel no vocation to the task. I see her, though, very plainly before me, a large woman of the gravest aspect, care on her front and on her shoulders, but not overwhelming, inevitable care, rather the sort of voluntary, exemplary cloud and burden people ever carry who deem it their duty to be gloomy. Ah, well a day, Mrs. York had that notion, and grave as Saturn she was, morning, noon, and night, and hard things she thought of any unhappy wight, especially of the female sex, who dared in her presence to show the light of a gay heart on a sunny countenance. In her estimation, to be mirthful was to be profane, to be cheerful was to be frivolous. She drew no distinctions. Yet she was a very good wife, a very careful mother, looked after her children unceasingly, was sincerely attached to her husband. Only the worst of it was, if she could have had her will, she would not have permitted him to have any friend in the world beside herself. All his relations were insupportable to her, and she kept them at arm's length. Mr. York and she agreed perfectly well, yet he was naturally a social, hospitable man, an advocate for family unity, and in his youth, as has been said, he liked none but lively, cheerful women. Why he chose her, how they contrived to suit each other, is a problem puzzling enough, but which might soon be solved if one had time to go into the analysis of the case. Suffice it here to say that York had a shadowy side, as well as a sunny side, to his character, and that his shadowy side found sympathy and affinity in the whole of his wife's uniformly overcast nature. For the rest, she was a strong-minded woman, never said a weak or a trite thing, took stern democratic views of society, and rather cynical ones of human nature, considered herself perfect and safe, and the rest of the world all wrong. Her main fault was a brooding, eternal, immitigable subsistion of all men, things, creeds, and parties. The suspicion was a mist before her eyes, a false guide in her path, wherever she looked, wherever she turned. It may be supposed that the children of such a pair were not likely to turn out quite ordinary, commonplace beings, and they were not. You see six of them, reader. The youngest is a baby on the mother's knee. It is all her own yet, and that one she has not yet begun to doubt, suspect, condemn. It derives its sustenance from her, it hangs on her, it clings to her, it loves her above everything else in the world. She is sure of that, because... As it lives by her, it cannot be otherwise. 
therefore she loves it. The next two are girls, Rose and Jessie. They are both now at their father's knee. They seldom go near their mother, except when obliged to do so. Rose, the elder, is twelve years old. She is like her father, the most like him of the whole group. But it is a granite head copied in ivory. All is softened in color and line. York himself has a harsh face, his daughter's is not harsh. Neither is it quite pretty. It is simple, childlike in feature. The round cheeks bloom. As to the gray eyes, they are otherwise than childlike. A serious soul lights them. A young soul yet, but it will mature if the body lives, and neither father nor mother have a spirit to compare with it. Partaking of the essence of each, it will one day be better than either, stronger, much purer, more aspiring. Rose is a still, sometimes a stubborn girl now. Her mother wants to make of her such a woman as she is herself, a woman of dark and dreary duties, and Rose has a mind full set, thick sown with the germs of ideas her mother never knew. It is agony to her often to have these ideas trampled on and repressed. She has never rebelled yet, but if hard-driven she will rebel one day, and then it will be once for all. Rose loves her father. Her father does not rule her with a rod of iron. He is good to her. He sometimes fears she will not live. So bright are the sparks of intelligence which, at moments, flash from her glance and gleam in her language. This idea makes him often sadly tender to her. He has no idea that little Jessie will die young. She is so gay and chattering, arch, original even now, passionate when provoked, but most affectionate of caressed, by turns gentle and rattling, exacting yet generous, fearless of her mother, for instance, whose irrationally hard and strict rule she has often defied, yet reliant on any who will help her. Jessie, with her little piquant face, engaging prattle and winning ways, is made to be a pet and her father's pet she accordingly is. It is odd that the doll should resemble her mother feature by feature, as Rose resembles her father, and yet the physiognomy, how different! Mr. York, if a magic mirror were now held before you, and if therein were shown you your two daughters, as they will be twenty years from this night, what would you think? The magic mirror is here. You shall learn their destinies, and first that of your little life, Jessie. Do you know this place? No, you never saw it. But you recognize the nature of these trees, this foliage, the cypress, the willow, the yew. Stone crosses like these are not unfamiliar to you, nor are these dim garlands of everlasting flowers. Here is the place, green sod and a gray marble headstone. Jessie sleeps below. She lived through an April day. Much love was she, much loving. She often, in her brief life, shed tears. She had frequent sorrows. She smiled between, gladdening whatever saw her. Her death was tranquil and happy in Rose's guardian arms, for Rose had been her stay and defense through many trials. The dying and the watching English girls were at that hour alone in a foreign country, and the soil of that country gave Jessie a grave. Now behold Rose two years later. The crosses and garlands look strange, but the hills and woods of this landscape landscape looks still stranger. Now, behold Rose two years later. The crosses and garlands looked strange, but the hills and woods of this landscape look still stranger. This, indeed, is far from England. Remote must be the shores which wear that wild, luxuriant aspect. This is some virgin solitude. Unknown birds flutter around the skirts of that forest. 
no European river this, on whose banks Rose sits thinking. The little quiet Yorkshire girl is a lonely emigrant in some region of the southern hemisphere. Will she ever come back? The three eldest of the family are all boys, Matthew, Mark, and Martin. They are seated together in that corner, engaged in some game. Observe their three heads, much alike at a first glance, at a second, different, at a third, contrasted. Dark-haired, dark-eyed, red-cheeked are the whole trio. Small English features they all possess, all own a blended resemblance to sire and mother, and yet a distinctive physiognomy, mark of a separate character, belongs to each. I shall not say much about Matthew, the first-born of the house, though it is impossible to avoid gazing at him long, and conjecturing what qualities that visage hides or indicates. He is no plain-looking boy. That jet-black hair, white brow, high-colored cheek, those quick, dark eyes, are good points in their way. How is it that, look as long as you will, there is but one object in the room, and that, the most sinister, to which Matthew's face seems to bear an affinity, and of which, ever and anon, it reminds you strangely, the eruption of Vesuvius? Flame and shadow seem the component parts of that lad's soul. No daylight in it, and no sunshine, and no pure, cool moonbeam ever shone there. He has an English frame, but, apparently, not an English mind. You would say, an Italian stiletto in a sheath of British workmanship. He is crossed in the game. Look at his scowl. Mr. York sees it, and what does he say? In a low voice he pleads, Mark and Martin. Don't anger your brother. And this is ever the tone adopted by both parents. Theoretically, they decry partiality. No rights of primogeniture are to be allowed in that house. But Matthew is never to be vexed, never to be opposed. They avert provocation from him as assiduously as they would avert fire from a barrel of gunpowder. Concede, conciliate, is their motto wherever he is concerned. The Republicans are fast making a tyrant of their own flesh and blood. This the younger scions know and feel, and at heart they all rebel against the injustice. They cannot read their parents' motives. They only see the difference of treatment. The dragon's teeth are already sown amongst Mr. York's young olive branches. Discord will one day be the harvest. Mark is a bonny-looking boy, the most regular featured of the family. He is exceedingly calm. His smile is shrewd. He can say the driest, most cutting things in the quietest of tones. Despite his tranquillity, a somewhat heavy brow speaks temper, and reminds you that the smoothest waters are not always the safest. Besides, he is too still, unmoved, phlegmatic, to be happy. Life will never have much joy in it for Mark. By the time he is five and twenty he will wonder why people ever laugh, and think all fools who seem merry. Poetry will not exist for Mark, either in literature or in life. Its best effusions will sound to him mere rant and jargon. Enthusiasm will be his aversion and contempt. Mark will have no youth. While he looks juvenile and blooming, he will be already middle-aged in mind. His body is now fourteen years of age, but his soul is already thirty. Martin, the youngest of the three, owns another nature. Life may or may not be brief for him, but it will certainly be brilliant. He will pass through all its illusions, half believe in them, wholly enjoy them, then outlive them. That boy is not handsome, not so handsome as either of his brothers. He is plain, there is a husk upon him, a dry shell, 
and he will wear it till he is near twenty. Then he will put it off. About that period he'll make himself handsome. He will wear uncouth manners till that age, perhaps homely garments, but the chrysalis will retain the power of transfiguring itself into the butterfly, and such transfiguration will, in due season, take place. For a space he will be vain, probably a downright puppy, eager for pleasure and desirous of admiration, a thirst too for knowledge, and he will want all that the world can give him, both of enjoyment and lore. He will perhaps take deep draughts at each fount. That thirst satisfied, what next? I know not. Martin might be a remarkable man. Whether he will or not, the seer is powerless to predict. On that subject there has been no open vision. Take Mr. York's family in the aggregate. There is as much mental power in those six young heads, as much originality, as much activity and vigor of brain, as, divided amongst half a dozen commonplace broods, would give to each rather more than an average amount of sense and capacity. Mr. York knows this, and is proud of his race. Yorkshire has such families here and there amongst her hills and worlds, peculiar, racy, vigorous, of good blood and strong brain, turbulent somewhat in their pride of their strength, and intractable in the force of their native powers, wanting polish, wanting consideration, wanting docility, but sound, spirited, and true-bred as the eagle on the cliff or the steed in the steppe. A low tap is heard at the parlor door. The boys have been making such noise over their game, and little Jessie besides has been singing so sweet a Scotch song to her father, who delights in Scotch and Italian songs, and has taught his musical little daughter some of the best, that the ring at the outer door was not observed. "'Come in,' says Mrs. York, in that conscientiously constrained and solemnized voice of hers, which ever modulates itself to a funeral dreariness of tone. There the subject is it is exercised upon, be but to give orders for the making of a pudding in the kitchen, to bid the boys hang up their caps in the hall, or to call the girls to their sewing. Come in! And in came Robert Moore. Moore's habitual gravity, as well as his abstemiousness, for the case of spirit decanters is never ordered up when he pays an evening visit, has so far recommended him to Mrs. York, that she has not yet made him the subject of private animaversions with her husband. She has not yet found out that he is hampered by a secret intrigue which prevents him from marrying, or that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Discoveries which she made at an early date, after marriage, concerning most of her husband's bachelor friends, and excluded them from her board accordingly, which, part of her conduct, indeed, might be said to have its just and sensible, as well as its harsh side. "'Well, is it you?' she says to Mr. Moore, as he comes up to her and gives his hand. "'What are you roving about at this time of night for? You should be at home.' "'Can a single man be said to have a home, madam?' he asks. "'Pooh,' says Mrs. York, who despises conventional smoothness quite as much as her husband does, and practices it as little, and whose plain speaking on all occasions is carried to a point calculated, sometimes, to awaken an admiration, but oftener alarm. Pooh, you will need not talk nonsense to me. A single man can have a home if he likes. Pray, does not your sister make a home for you? Not she, joined in Mr. York. Hortense is an honest last. But when I was Robert's age, I had five or six sisters, all as decent and proper as she is. But you see, Hester, for all that it did not hinder me from looking out for a wife. And sorely he has repented marrying me, added Mrs. York, 
who liked occasionally to crack a dry jest against matrimony, even though it should be at her own expense. He has repented it in sackcloth and ashes, Robert Moore, as you may well believe when you see his punishment. Here she pointed to her children. Who would burden themselves with such a set of great rough lads as those if they could help it? It is not only bringing them into the world, though that is bad enough, but they are all to feed, to clothe, to rear, to settle in life. Young sir, when you feel tempted to marry, think of our four sons and two daughters, and look twice before you leap. I am not tempted now at any rate. I think these are not times for marrying or giving in marriage. A lugubrious sentiment of this sort was sure to obtain Mrs. York's approbation. She nodded and groaned acquiescence, but in a minute she said, I make little account of the wisdom of a Solomon of your age. It will be upset by the first fancy that crosses you. Meantime, sit down, sir. You can talk, I suppose, as well as sitting and standing. This was her way of inviting her guest to take a chair. He had no sooner obeyed her than little Jessie jumped from her father's knee and ran into Mr. Moore's arms, which were very promptly held out to receive her. "'You talk of marrying him,' said she to her mother, quite indignantly, as she was lifted lightly to his knee. "'And he is married now, or as good. He promised that I should be his wife last summer, the first time he saw me in my new white frock and blue sash. Didn't he, father?' These children were not accustomed to say Papa and Mama. Their mother would no allow no such namby-pamby. "'Aye, my little lassie,' he promised. "'I'll bear witness. "'But make him say it over again now, Jessie. "'Such as he are only false loons.' "'He is not false. "'He is too bonny to be false,' cried Jessie, "'looking up to her tall sweetheart "'with the fullest confidence in his faith. "'Bonny!' cried Mr. York. "'That's the reason that he should be, "'and proof that he is a scoundrel.' "'But he looks too sorrowful to be false.' Here interposed a quiet voice from behind the father's chair. "'If he were always laughing, I should think he forgot promises soon. But Mr. Moore never laughs.' "'Your sentimental buck is the greatest cheat of all, Rose,' remarked Mr. York. "'He's not sentimental,' said Rose. Mr. Moore turned to her with a little surprise, smiling at the same time. "'How do you know I am not sentimental, Rose?' "'Because I heard a lady say you were not.' "'Voilà!' Qui devient intéressant, exclaimed Mr. York, hitching his chair nearer the fire. A lady, that has quite a romantic twang. We must guess who it is. Rosie, whisper the name low to your father after him here. Rose, don't be too forward to talk, here interrupted Mrs. York in her usual killjoy fashion, nor Jessie either. It becomes all children, especially girls, to be silent in the presence of their elders. "'Why have we tongues, then?' asked Jessie pertly, while Rose only looked at her mother with an expression that seemed to say she should take that maxim in and think it over at her leisure. After two minutes' grave deliberation, she asked, "'And why especially girls, mother?' Firstly, because I say so, and secondly, because discretion and reserve are a girl's best wisdom.' "'My dear madam,' observed Moore, "'what you say is excellent.' It reminds me indeed of my dear sister's observations, but really it is not applicable to these little ones. Let Rose and Jessie talk to me freely, or my chief pleasure in coming here is gone. I like their prattle. It does me good. Does it not? asked Jessie. More good than if the rough lads came round you. You call them rough mother yourself. Yes, mignon, a thousand times more good. I have rough lads enough about me all day long, poulet. 
There are plenty of people, continued she, who take notice of the boys. All my uncles and aunts seem to think their nephews better than their nieces, and when gentlemen come here to dine, it is always Matthew and Mark and Martin that are talked to, and never Rose and me. Mr. Moore is our friend, and we'll keep him. But mind, Rose, he's not so much your friend as he is mine. He is my particular acquaintance, remember that. And she held up her small hand with an admonitory gesture. End of chapter 9, part 1